The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. This morning, um, I have the privilege of getting to share the word with you. We're going to talk about um, a few things. Budgets, systems, and tithing. I'm just kidding. We're not. No. <laughs> Although I would love to talk about those things. I, I, I love talking about those things, actually. Um, no, we're not going to talk about those. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. So if you can please grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. Evidence. Evidence in the court of law is what helps determine innocence or guilt. Right? We all know this. Innocence can be condemning or it can be exonerating. It can be confirming or denying. It can be damning, or it can be defending. Evidence is what helps us make informed decisions. Now, there are various standards of evidence that show how strong evidence must be in order to meet uh, a legal burden of proof in any given situation. In our legal system, there are parameters and requirements, right, for what makes good evidence, and they're well-defined. In our day-to-day life, we don't necessarily need evidence to be so cut and dry sometimes, right? Uh, For example, if I see my puppy run through the door and there's mud splattered all over the floor, the evidence points to the fact that she was in the backyard digging, right? If uh, my wife comes home and sees an REI bag on the counter and there was an REI yard sale, she knows her husband spent a couple of hundred dollars out of the bank account to buy some gear I'm barely ever going to (laughs) use. Evidence in our personal life doesn't necessarily uh, need to be too concrete in order to make informed decisions. However, even in the judicial system, we can see uh, people provide an incredible amount of evidence, and still the verdict may not be exactly what we expect. The the one that came to mind to me was probably one of the most notable, uh, most publicized Uh, most circus events of criminal cases back in 1994 involved a white bronco and uh, it was the people of California versus who? O.J. Simpson, that's right. There was a lot of condemning evidence, right, in that case. It was a slow speed car chase on the freeways of Southern California. There was blood, there was a glove, There was a mustache and disguise and passports in the car, like just some crazy, crazy stuff. And still, Mr. Simpson Simpson was acquitted on two counts of manslaughter, in large part just due to mishandling of evidence and DNA. In our story today, in Acts chapter 3, we witness a miracle. And we witness the miracle, it's an evidence of something. An evidence of what? That Jesus Christ is actually who he says that he is. That Jesus Christ was the son of the living God, that he was sent by the Father as a ransom for many. According to Philippians 2, 6, it says this, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. So as we read this story in Acts chapter 3 today, I challenge you to look for the evidence that points to Jesus as the suffering servant 
and as the risen Messiah. So we're going to read chapter 3 now, and we're actually going to read chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, verse 4. So let's read together. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But then Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement and what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to be denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witness. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of our Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be the very, every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and to put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who moved in Pentecost and saved 5,000, 3,000 that day, the same Spirit that's been working ever since then, we ask that you'd be living and present here with us this morning. Thank you for your graciousness towards us. Thank you for your patience towards us. 
Thank you for your love for us. We ask in this time, Father, that you would give us wisdom, that you give us ears to hear, that you incline our hearts and bend our ears as we desire to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, by way of review and context, according to the last couple of verses in chapter 2, many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. Last week, Pastor Mitch walked us through how there was a a general sense of awe, which means a a reverent fear in response to some of the things that had been happening. This wasn't in the norm, right? People were being healed. People were acting in ways that they shouldn't be acting. People were hearing their language spoken, the gospel proclaimed. There was some crazy, crazy stuff going on that produced a a reverency of like, man, there's, there's something going on here and I don't know what it is. These miracles demonstrates the power of the Spirit and their presence among them. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and Peter's proclamation of the gospel saved 3,000 people, and it says at the very end of chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In chapter 3, we've got really an incredible story, and I, I love this story. It's a, within the timeline of the book of Acts. It addresses the first miracle of healing in detail, Um, as well as the second public declaration of the gospel, um, which is pretty pretty great. There are 32 speeches overall in the book of Acts, uh, really constituting about a third of the entire book. So today we get to go really in detail in the first miracle and the second speech. If you're note takers, I'd encourage you to take out your your notebooks. Um, Just the way that my mind works, I I think very uh, somewhat logically and need bullet points to help me stay on track and and find organization. I don't know that you'll find any value in the bullet points, but they are there. So by all means, take take notes if you want. We really can break this entire chapter down into two different and distinct parts, and your Bible does that for you as well. The first part is the miracle, and that's in verses 1 through 10 right, that we just read about. The second part is the message. So there's the miracle and the message. The message is verses 11 through 26. The miracle is here is not the point of the passage. I just, I need to stress this, okay? We can't separate these two. We shouldn't study the Bible and just read this miracle and find some application. They need to be read together, okay? So the miracle and the message, they go together, and the miracle here is not the point. I was talking to Jeff about this earlier. He's like, yeah, man, this is the this isn't the point, it's the pointer that points to the point, okay? So a couple of uh, observations as we work our way through the text as it pertains to the miracle. So our first section, observations within the miracle. Number one, Peter directed his gaze at this man. It says that both Peter and John, if you read it closely, that they, they both directed their gaze. It was like as if the, the spirit was moving in their hearts, um, that this, this is the man that needed to be healed, that something miraculous was going to happen right here. According to Jewish tradition, uh, Peter and John would have been going to the, the temple about three times a day for prayer. So it stands to reason that they would have walked by this guy time after time after time after time and never felt the inclination, never felt the impression of the Holy Spirit to act. So, Today was a different day for some reason. And Peter, he, he, he gets this guy's attention. I, I think of since I'm in the zone with my kids right now, at their ages, it's kind of the like, you kind of grab them by the face. You look at, look at me in the eyes. You know. If you're a teacher, you say in your class, like, 
what, one, two, three, all eyes on me, right? It's like, hey, I need you to focus. I need you to focus because what I'm about to tell you is really important, and I don't want you to miss it. Now, this would have been really unexpected, okay, because just like today when you roll up to a stoplight and you've got somebody standing there and they're, you know, asking for money, it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to ask for money. In their day and age, in their culture, it would have been a little bit more culturally relevant because if they were lame or injured, people knew that they couldn't work. That's why he's here at the temple. He's looking to receive blessing from people who are going to worship, okay? But today is a different day for some reason. Number two, the man didn't ask to be healed. I don't know if you guys, you know, caught that or not. There's, there's plenty of examples of Jesus' ministry where people are actually seeking him out to be healed or for a demon to be cast out. Here, the man is simply doing what he always does. He's just doing his daily thing, right? He's asking for alms. He's looking for his sustenance for that day. But God had something that was better for him, right? I don't know about you guys, but the the difference between our wants and our needs, man, I can blur those in a real hurry. I don't know about you guys, but I have a tendency to kind of dictate the Lord's provision in my life. I set little caveats of like, oh, God's going to provide. I know that he will. And man, I just am hoping and praying it's going to look exactly like this. I met my wife when I was uh, 13 years old. We started going out when, when we were 13. And our 13-year-old selves, like, you know, as, as our relationship progressed, like we, we had these, these hopes and we, these dreams. We had these aspirations, right, of like, oh, man, life is going to look like this. We're going to have three kids. We're going to get through school. We're going to have good jobs. We're going to have a house on the lake. We're going to, you know, my wife's going to be a stay-at-home mom, and, and we're just, we're going to, like, this life is going to be awesome, man. It's going to be great. <laughs> and for those of us who have been around a while, like, our expectation versus the reality is just different, isn't it? Things just don't work out exactly as you expect that they will. And I've got a blessed story. Man, I, I love our story. I love where we are. But I can tell you, it is, it is quite a bit different than we imagined when we were 13 years old. If you would have told my wife then at 13 that she was going to be a homeschool mom, that she was going to work part-time, that we were going to have a trailer instead of a house on the lake, and that she was going to be a pastor's wife, Man, she probably would have ran for the hills. No. I have a good life. But man, our our expectation. This man looked up at Peter and John with expectation. I'm going to receive something that I want here. Something that I need. Everybody knows what this guy is asking for, right? Everybody knows. But what he gets is something different. I love what Joby Martin from Church at 1122 says. He says this, Our problem isn't that we ask for too much, but that we're satisfied with too little. I'm going to say that again. Our problem isn't that we ask for too much, but that we are satisfied with too little. I just pose a quick question to you just in passing. 
What are you asking the Lord for? What are you begging the Lord for? I'd encourage you to ask him for what you ultimately need and not exactly what we want, to find value, to find satisfaction when God provides something so much better because he, he's a good, good father, right? We know that. He gives good gifts. He cares about us. He wants what's best for us. And he's going to give us things that we need, not that we want. Thirdly, Peter demonstrates great boldness in this miracle, right? It was not very long ago that Peter is standing there by that fire as Jesus was being tried, and he denied Jesus to a little servant girl, right? Back in uh, Matthew 17, I believe, yes, Matthew 17, uh, a man brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and he says, hey, can you cast the demon out of my son? And the, the disciples fail miserably, right? So Peter's right there in the, in the middle of that. But here, man, Peter is bold. And like we know Peter to be bold, right? Like Peter's the first one out of the boat. He's walking into the storm. He's the first one to speak who isn't listening. But man, we got to give him some props. Like he is bold. And here, in this story, like Peter doesn't shy away from the fact that God wants to do a miracle here. I don't know about you guys, but I totally would have done, I, w- I would have gone about this miracle different, right? I would have been like, hey, hey, if you, if you want to be healed, you just pray. And then when we come out, like maybe God will have healed you by then, right? <laughs> like that would be awesome. Hey, brother, praying for you, praying for healing for you. I'll see you, see you tomorrow. No. And Peter, he goes all in. He does not give God an exit strategy on this, right? He's just like, God is going to do this, or all this is for naught. So Peter demonstrates great boldness in both word, in how he commissions this, and in action, in deed. Peter publicly pronounces the provision, and then he participates in that provision. It requires action. When he says, rise up and walk, you realize that the guy doesn't rise up and walk at that moment. He says, rise up and walk. He gives this great speech. He says, man, I've got something for you. Here you go. It's not until Peter reaches out his hand and pulls him up that the man's legs are healed. The word just says very clearly here that the miracle doesn't happen until there's some, there's some action going on. So Peter is demonstrating great boldness here. So Peter and John... They are empowered by the Holy Spirit to heal this man. And upon seeing the crowd gather around them, as the scripture says, Peter says that he addressed them. That word addressed him in the Greek actually can be translated as answered them. So Peter sees them coming and he answers them. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter was providing an answer to the hope that the man had just found. Ensuring that Christ was seen as the reason. And then he uses the next verses of 11 through 26 to very boldly present the gospel to those that had gathered. The question, the question that's in chapter 3 And the one that many people are still asking today is, was Jesus really who he said that he was? Is Jesus who he said he is? How can I know that 
And what is the evidence? This text provides evidence of who Jesus was and the work that he was doing even after his death through his apostles. We're going to break it down now into three different parts, three evidences as seen within our text. So the evidence that Jesus is, who that he says that he is, is number one, the message professes it in verses 11 through 26. The prophets predicted it in 17 through 26, and the miracle proves it in chapter 4, verses 14. So here, Peter makes some radical statements, and man, again, I just, I love his boldness. I'm encouraged by his boldness, because in the message, he is professing the gospel. He's professing the truth to people who didn't believe in the Messiah. They had missed the Messiah. So, the message professes it. Number one, Peter dispels what this miracle is not. Okay, sometimes the best way to describe what something is is to describe what it is not. He says, this is not accredited to any of our power or our piety, our holiness. It has nothing to do to us. He's like, why, why are you looking at us? This has nothing to do with me. Neither the healer nor the healed man have any intrinsic value whatsoever. Peter calls that out at the very beginning. Secondly, the message describes who Jesus is and their denial of his authority. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He is the holy and righteous one, the author of life. Here, Peter appeals to their Jewish lineage, all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And look at the language that Peter's using here. He says, You denied him. You asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life. You have responsibility in this. He's not holding any punches. He is just speaking it like it is. You missed the Messiah and you killed him. Thirdly, the message declares how faith in his name heals. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know that the faith is through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health. All throughout chapters 3 and 4, Peter points to the authority and the power of Jesus' name. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus himself says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, back, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. This is important. Please listen. It is not the quality of the faith that we have. It is about the one who our faith is in. Right? We know that. But we need to be reminded of this every single stinking day because I have such a short memory that I just lose perspective so quickly. It's not the quality of the faith that we have. It's not the size or the quality or the flashiness of that faith. No, it is about the one who our faith is in. The message also defers to the prophets for confirmation in, 18, in verse 18. He says, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. The message defines the way of salvation. What does he say? How can we be saved? Repent. It's easy. It's clear. 
repent. Ah, and then verses 20 through 21, the message delineates the kingdom to come, right? If we repent, he lays out three things, three things, of, uh, three points of blessing for repentance. First, that our sins will be blotted out. Second, that times of refreshment may come. And third, that he may send Christ to you to restore all things. So he says, man, with this message, with this evidence that you've been given, if you repent, if you ask for forgiveness, you'll receive total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, full universal restoration of all things. Can you see the evidence that Peter is using here? Peter really outlines the gospel in this whole section. I mean, I think that that's clear. It's a, it's a sermon, right? But it really follows the exact same framework here. It is a confession of sin. It's not because of us. Like, don't look at me. I have nothing to do with this. Acknowledgement of who Jesus is and understanding that our sin is what separates us from God and how faith in him and in his name we can be saved. Repentance from sin and salvation and hope. see the parallels of the sinner's prayer here. You see, the people who had gathered around them had a question. How, how did this happen? Like, how did this happen? Like, if we really take a moment and let it sink in, like, what just, what just happened here? In chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that the, the paralytic was 40 years old, right? This wasn't just an accident that happened. He didn't get trampled by a horse. He was born this way, Right? It's quite possible that he could be sitting at that exact spot at the entrance to the table, temple, excuse me, when he was 12 years old, when he was 23 years old, when he was 39 years old. Man, he's 40 years old. They're going, we know this guy, right? <laughs> the person that came to mind is, as we talk about like a community of people who may know someone, I think of downtown Dan, right? <laughs> Like, everybody knows when I say downtown Dan who I'm referring to. He's the happy-go-lucky guy who wanders very quickly through the town carrying a cup of coffee, right? He'll talk to anybody that he comes in contact with. It would be as if that type of personality, the person who everybody knows and everybody recognizes from being right there at the gate, goes, man, he was this way, and now he's this way. I don't understand. I've got a question. What do, what do I do with this? The miracle poses a question, and Peter answers it. He gives evidence through the message that Jesus is who he says that he is. All right, so coming back up a little bit higher level, the, the message professes that Jesus is who he says he is, and secondly, the prophets predicted it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and promises. A biblical scholar affirmed that there are over 456 passages in the Old Testament that refer to the Messiah. Incredible. 456 passages that reference the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Here, Peter alludes to several Old Testament texts as he points people to Jesus. From Abraham onward, the flow of redemptive history culminates in Jesus. 
God foretold that this would happen. It says right here in the text, by the mouth of what? All the prophets. All. He says, you missed the Messiah. The prophets predicted it. You should have known it was coming, but you missed it. And thirdly, the miracle proves it. The miracle proves it. Peter's miracle here was undeniable. There wasn't any loophole. There wasn't a caveat. There wasn't a smoke and mirror here. This, this was a legitimate miracle. Now, I don't want to skip too far ahead because I don't want to steal the thunder from Jeff's message next week, but I'm going to a little bit. In chapter 4, verse 14, the religious leaders um, have pulled Peter and John aside, right? Based on what they're preaching, they're like, no, we can't, we can't have this. So they detain them for the evening. The next morning, they bring them before the group. And uh, let's see what evidence the miracle produced in the witnesses that saw the miracle that day. It says in verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, So the man who had been healed is standing right there by Peter and John, right? He's not leaving their side. He's like, man, whatever this is, I want this. He's standing beside them, and they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what do we do? What do we do about these guys? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They're like, you know, little round table. They're like, oh my word, what are we going to do? How do we stop this message from going forth? Because we have all seen some evidence of something great happening and we can't deny it. So what in the world do we do? Everyone in town was witness that a man who was born broken had been miraculously healed. This is the main point of the third chapter of Acts, you guys. The signs and wonders, they're meant to be a catalyst for the proclamation of Jesus Christ and his healing power for our eternal souls, right? This guy got a physical healing. He had a physical want. He got a physical healing. And not only that, he got a spiritual eternity that was assured. The miracles performed by Jesus and by his disciples after his death are a means of alleviating suffering in our fallen condition right? This isn't how God intended it. He didn't intend for us to be broken the way that we are. Sin caused that. One day, though, it says here in our text, one day Christ will return for that second coming where he's going to fix everything. He's going to make everything right. The prophet Isaiah in 35.6 speaks of this future hope. He says this, then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The paralytic in this story is a living testament of Isaiah's words. He's saying, man, there is a kingdom. There is a kingdom to come where there will be no more worrying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more fear, no more heartache, and no more sin. The kingdom to come is perfect, and it can only be accessed through the perfect sinless lamb's blood. By repentance, we place our faith in the name. The same name that healed this man is the same name 
that we find salvation in if we receive his righteousness according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is credited as our, to our account. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We simply believe in his name and we'll be saved. I love what Lesore said. He said, it is not the church's business in this world to simply make the present condition more bearable. The task of the church is to release here on earth the redemptive work of God in Christ. Guys, our purpose here is not just to soften the edges and discomfort of this world. Right? That doesn't produce anything good in the end. Our purpose is to point Jesus, people to Jesus. So what, what's the point? What's the point here? The point is, is we need salvation in Jesus. The miracle points us to Jesus. If we already have salvation in Jesus, we're called to be witnesses of the evidences of his authority and what he's done for us. Guys, evidence demands a verdict. Evidence demands a verdict. In chapter 4, verse 4, we see that another 2,000 people came to Christ that day. They were faced with the evidence and they made a decision. Our brothers back then and sisters acknowledged Jesus as the risen Savior. For those of you in the room who may not know Jesus or may not have a personal relationship with him, the evidence is all around you. I don't know if you see it all the time or just in small little moments, but I can tell you that you're going to have to choose. You'll need to choose. Choose to accept the evidence of Jesus as the risen Savior or you'll choose to deny him like the people in verse 14. Be guilty by association. For those faithful servants who are here that love Jesus, can I ask you a question? Is your testimony an evidence of a miracle? Is your testimony an evidence of a miracle? We may not see signs and wonders the way that the early church saw them. Sometimes we do. And it, they could still happen today. They sure do. But is your testimony an evidence of a miracle that God did in you? What I mean by that is, do you have evidence of life transformation? Or are you mostly the same? Can people look at you and go, man, I knew him, I knew her before he met this Jesus and after. Man, he is jumping and leaping and praising God and I, I don't understand. That leaves me with a question inside. Why? How? What does that look like? Some of our testimonies may not be dramatic life change, but guys, it, it is a way that God works in and through us as we are constantly being refined through life to be more and more like Jesus. Will you go walking and leaping and praising God or will you sit back down on the sidewalk 
and go back to doing what we have always done. What's familiar, right? This is the only thing this guy's ever known. As believers in Jesus, we have been reborn. Our testimony should be evidence for others that Jesus changes lives and is the risen Messiah. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up now. Um, We've got a wonderful opportunity in front of us now, you guys, uh, to respond. For the unbeliever here who doesn't know Jesus, I would encourage you, man, I'll be down here afterwards. Some other elders can be here to answer a question. But I'd ask you to do this. I'd ask you to, to know in your heart that just by pushing that question aside time and time and time again, that question needs to be answered. And if it's not answered now, it'll be answered for you. You either choose to deny him or you choose to accept him. Evidence demands a verdict. It will happen. And for my brothers and sisters, man, we can go walking and leaping and praising God, knowing that we have been changed from the inside out, that we no longer are under the penalty of sin and death, that that has been substituted on our behalf, and now we get to enter the temple freely. This man could have entered the temple, possibly, man, now he gets to go running in. I'd encourage you, as the tables of communion are going to be open, come and have conversation, have dinner with your Savior. Spend time at his feet in thankfulness, knowing that, man, this is good news. This is good news. At this time, I'm going to ask the brothers to come forward and receive this morning's tithes and offerings. And after that, we are going to worship and we're going to break bread with our Savior. Will you guys pray with me? Oh, most holy God, we acknowledge the evidence that you place in front of us. We can't turn a blind eye to it. We know that it is there, and when we know that it's there, we have to make a choice. Lord, I like to push things off. I like to just, man, when it becomes a critical decision, I will make that decision then. But Lord, that time is now. Would you impress upon all of our hearts an urgency, an urgency to allow the miracles in life, our testimony, the things that you do day in and day out to be a catalyst, to be a projection of your gospel as we point to you, Jesus. So may you be glorified. Jesus' name, and all God's people said.